I've got a crook running my campaign. Then-candidate Donald Trump said this about his then-campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, after the press revealed Manafort's payments from the Ukraine. According to the book, Let Trump Be Trump, by Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, and former deputy campaign manager, David Bossy. I've got a crook running my campaign. Nearly a year later, on July 31st, Manafort arrives in court, facing the first of two trials with the possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison, if proven guilty. This is what happened to Manafort after he rose to power, only to fall and lose the lavish lifestyle that he craved and desperately tried to get it back by getting whole, whole with Oleg Deripaska and whole with himself. I am Paxson Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxson. Why did Paul Manafort want to work for Donald Trump? Why did he work as Trump's campaign chairman for no money? In order to address these questions, we must first understand how Manafort got to where he is now, facing a possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. When Manafort came on to the Trump campaign, he seemed quite desperate to return to his luxurious lifestyle, a life built on money. Manafort has helped politicians across the globe rise to power. However, there was a time when he based himself in the United States and did not venture out of the country to get more cash. According to Franklin Four, in his article in The Atlantic, The Plot Against America, Manafort entered the world of politics early in his life. In his 20s, Manafort worked closely with his friend, Roger Stone, who would later campaign for his other ally, Donald Trump. Manafort would campaign for Gerald Ford and later Ronald Reagan. Manafort, Stone, and young Republican veteran Charlie Black set up a lobbying firm. This firm soon became Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly. Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly became very powerful and influential, and they made a lot of money. The political operative Lee Atwater was hired by this firm. Former counsel Atwater confessed to the Washington Post that, quote unquote, after four years on a government payroll, I'm delighted with my new lifestyle. Black Manafort Stone and Kelly was an easy way for those involved to make money. Manafort ultimately was one of the key leaders at the firm. Ford explained how those who wanted to rise in the ranks of the firm needed to pass Manafort's loyalty test. Despite the large influx of cash to the firm, Manafort sought to gain more wealth and with it, more power. 
In order to follow a path of power, Manafort and his firm began to expand beyond the United States. Ford describes how the firm sold itself as having ties to the Reagan and later H.W. Bush administrations. Manafort clashed with some of his partners over where the firm should lend its services. Peter Kelly, the former finance chairman of the Democratic National Committee, wanted to have the firm in sync with Western values. Manafort, however, seemed to have had more of a desire for money and power than a strong moral compass. Manafort used the firm to lobby for despots in many countries, including Zaire, Saudi Arabia, Kenya, Somalia, Nigeria, and Equilateral Guinea. Due to Manafort's work for these dictators, the firm was dubbed the Torturer's Lobby by the Center for Public Integrity. Manafort would make these dictators appear legitimate, but, as Four points out, there was an even more sinister side. Manafort and his firm's work promoting a despot to power in Angola led to the prolonging of a civil war in Angola and hundreds of thousands of Angolan deaths. Manafort soon tested the limits of his moral compass when he befriended Lebanese arms dealer Abdul Rahman Alassir. According to Four, Manafort and Alassir partnered and brokered an arms deal between France and Pakistan that involved kickbacks and bribes. This deal eventually led to murder allegations after a car bomb in Karachi, Pakistan killed 11 French naval engineers and three Pakistanis. Four says that the families of some of these engineers vehemently believe that this murder was connected to the deal that Manafort and Alassir helped to broker. And, as Four points out, Manafort is also believed to have helped arms dealer Ziad Takadini cover up the origin of some of the money in this deal. Manafort formed a close relationship with Alassir and took him to George H.W. Bush's inauguration, and Manafort even became the godfather of a child of Alassir. Alassir had introduced Manafort to a world of big money. One of Manafort's friends told Four how, quote-unquote, Paul became aware of the difference between making $300,000 and $5 million. He discovered the south of France. Alassir would show him how to live that life. I believe that it is this life that Alassir introduced him to, that Manafort attempted to hang on to, or get back, when he started working for Donald Trump. Just like Manafort's past has been catching up to him, it appears Alassir's past has as well. According to Mediapart, in their article, judges step up hunt for the phantom figure behind the Karachi affair. Alassir currently has an international arrest warrant out for him. Manafort spent his money as quickly as he made it, according to the Washington Post article, from six homes to a city jail, Paul Manafort, who redefined lobbying, faces trial. Manafort's estate in the Hamptons include a basketball court with a putting green. Manafort also bought his daughter a farm close to Palm Beach with specially bred horses from Ireland that required the attention of full-time staffers just when she acknowledged her interest in horseback riding. Manafort had six homes before he came under scrutiny for his work in the Ukraine. 
Manafort seemed to earn a lot of money from his work as a lobbyist. However, in order to get this money, he involved himself with the shading dealings of Alasir. However, as I will lay out for you, this would not be the first time that Manafort broke the laws in order to make money and live the life that had been introduced to him by Alasir. According to Forbes, Manafort allegedly promised the former Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos that he would pass on $10 million that Marcos had given him to the Reagan re-election campaign. This would have been an illegal act in itself. To me, this embodies the same argument that some make when they say that Trump colluded with the Russian government in order to win the 2016 presidential election. In the example of Marcos and Manafort, a foreign power was willing to give a certain candidate for president of the United States aid in order to win the election. Manafort, however, allegedly did not give the $10 million to the Reagan re-election campaign, but rather kept it for himself. Manafort has denied that this incident occurred. Ford describes how after the firm Burson Marceller consolidated with Black Manafort Stone and Kelly, Manafort left his firm to start a new one, Davis, Manafort, and Friedman. Rick Davis, a member of this new firm, soon found himself meeting with the Honorable Nathaniel Philip Victor James Rothschild, also known as The Nat. Rothschild is a financer from Britain who has become a close friend and advisor of the Russian billionaire oligarch Oleg Deripaska. What must be understood about Russia's oligarch class is that they are ultimately under the operational control of Vladimir Putin. According to Malcolm Nance on MSNBC, when Putin came to power, he soon realized that if he was going to be an effective ruler, he would need to take control of the richest people in Russia, the Russian oligarchs. Many of the Russian oligarchs submitted to him, and those did, that did not were practically ruined by Putin. Nance points out that Oleg Deripaska would have ultimately been looking out for the interests of Russia and Putin, as well as his own interests. In collusion, Luke Harding makes a similar point, describing how often Deripaska would find himself trying to please Putin and put himself in the Kremlin's favor. I presume that Davis would have been surprised to find himself being with a friend and advisor of Oleg Deripaska. Ford describes best what happens next. Manafort's new firm was soon hired by Rothschild to revive in the influence of a former Georgian politician and KGB operative that had been accused in court as one of the major players in a scheme to assassinate Georgian pre President Eduard Shevardnadze. This effort never succeeded. However, the introduction of Deripaska in Manafort's life changed his life forever. In 2005, Manafort proposed a deal to Deripaska. Four explains how Manafort proposed that Deripaska finance his attempts to quote-unquote influence politics, business dealings, and news coverage inside the United States, Europe, and former Soviet republics to benefit President Vladimir Putin's government. I've come to the conclusion that this made Manafort now not only an agent of the Reagan or Bush administrations, but an agent of the Kremlin. 
campaign to, for Russian interests across the globe. Deripaska, of course, denies he agreed to this proposal. It seems very likely, however, that he did, in fact, agree to this proposal because the next chapter in Manafort's life revolved around influencing the politics of one particular former Soviet republic for the benefit of Putin. What would Manafort get in return for his proposal to Deripaska? Wealth and power, which seem to have been the factors that have influenced Manafort's life the most. According to Harding, Manafort signed a 10 million annual contract with his new oligarch ally. Deripaska led Manafort and his longtime aide, Rick Gates, on a path to join the Ukrainian campaign of Viktor Yanukovych for prime minister in 2005. Rick Gates has been a key player in Manafort's life since 2006, when he joined Manafort's new lobbying firm. However, as pointed out in the Moscow Project, Gates had worked for Manafort before 2006, when he was an intern in Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly. As Nicholas Confessori and Barry Meyer point out in their article in the New York Times how the Russia investigation entangled Rick Gates, a Manafort protege, although Manafort met Gates when Gates was an intern for Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly, Manafort left the firm the same year Gates started at it, so they could not have become very close partners. However, Gates became very close partner with, of Rick Davis, who later went to work for Manafort's new firm, and Gates followed him there. Rick Davis left the firm to work for John McCain in 2008. The Moscow Project also points out how Gates ended up working for Yanukovych because of, quote-unquote, Manafort's political consulting and as part of his business dealings with the Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Manafort and Gates broke the law by working for Yanukovych's campaign, quote-unquote, without registering and providing the disclosures required. As Ben Jacobs of The Guardians explains in his article, who is Rick Gates, Manafort's right-hand man and alleged partner in crime? At this point in his life, Gates was helping Yanukovych rise to the position of prime minister and working with Manafort to do so. This was not the first time that Yanukovych had run for a powerful position in the Ukraine. Harding recounts how in 2004, when Yanukovych ran for the Ukrainian presidency, the Russian government supported him. Yanukovych had attempted to influence the outcome of this election by deploying tactics such as fraud and intimidation. When there was a rerun vote, Yanukovych's opponent, Viktor Yushchenko, won the election. Yanukovych had been appointed prime minister in 2002 by then-Ukrainian president Leonid Kuchma. After Yanukovych's loss in 2004, he was not able to rebuild his power base immediately. First, he had to hire Manafort. When Manafort visited the Ukraine in the voting stage of the Ukrainian 2004 presidential election, he did not have high hopes for the success of Yanukovych and his campaign. Ultimately, he was right to doubt the success of Yanukovych's presidential campaign, as Yushchenko won the rerun vote. When Manafort and Gates joined Yanukovych's campaign for prime minister in 2005, they set up shop in Kiev and tried to remain mostly unnoticed by the Ukrainian press. 
Harding had the chance to interview Manafort. In the interview, Manafort claimed that Yankovic had, quote-unquote, learned a lot since 2004. Manafort told Harding that, quote-unquote, the other side is not the other side. People are still looking at the political system in this country through the prism of 2004. That's not at all the situation here. Manafort also explained to Harding that Yanukovych was in fact not pro-Russian, but aligned with pro-Western interests. Manafort argued that Yanukovych is, quote-unquote, still his own man. There is no Russian influence in his campaign. Harding was lucky to get his interview with Manafort because Manafort did not relish in the press during his time in the Ukraine. When Ukraine's leading investigative reporter, Mustafa Naim, wanted to interview Manafort or Gates, he was turned away. Harding, however, soon learned after his interview with Manafort that, quote-unquote, everything he told me was a lie. Manafort would be paid handsomely for his work by Oleg Deripaska, who remained a constant factor in Manafort's life. Gates would travel to Moscow to meet with Deripaska's associates. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, Manafort helped to transform the image of Viktor Yanukovych. According to Four, an economic advisor to the Ukrainian government explained how Manafort, quote-unquote, got Yanukovych to wear the same suits as he did and to comb his hair backwards as he does. Manafort, according to the economic advisor, also, quote-unquote, taught him how to smile and do small talk. Manafort, it seemed, was transforming a disgraced politician into a new man. This is the same argument that Manafort made to Harding in his interview with him, the argument that Yanukovych has, quote-unquote, learned a lot since 2004. Yanukovych had learned about public appearance and how to seem like a better politician. However, his policies seemed to have remained the same. The party of regents, Yanukovych's party, still seems to have remained anti-American and pro-Russian, or pro-Putin, according to the information found in Ford's article. When Yanukovych was ousted from power, he fled to Russia. Not all of Manafort's changes in the image of Yanukovych, however, were for show. According to the Washington Post article, from six homes to a city jail, Paul Manafort, who redefined lobbying, faces trial by Rachel Weiner and Tom Hamburger. They describe how Manafort improved targeted messaging and polling methods of Yanukovych's campaign. Manafort would give Yanukovych different strategies for talking to different regions of the Ukraine. According to Four, Manafort would tell Yanukovych to focus on a new theme every week. It was a simple strategy, but Yanukovych seemed to like it and would listen to Manafort's advice. For his work in the Ukraine, Manafort was rewarded. He received sums of money greater than any amount he had ever previously received, according to Four. This was the ultimate driving factor for Manafort and Gates' work in the Ukraine. In Confessories and Myers' article, 
how the Russian investigation entangled Rick Gates, a Manafort protege. They describe how Tad Devine, a Democratic political consultant who worked for Davis Manafort, explains that, quote-unquote, you elect Yanukovych, he's, he is going to make it a market economy. So you work for, to do deals and get foreign investment. And that's where the real money was. The work in the Ukraine was going to make a lot of money for Manafort and Gates. This was what likely drove them to stay on the campaign for Yanukovych. Yanukovych's party and campaign was gaining steam, and Viktor Yushchenko was compelled to name Yanukovych as prime minister in 2006. In 2010, Yanukovych faced off with the Ukrainian pre- in the Ukrainian presidential race with Yushchenko and Yulia Tim- Timoshenko, who played a major role in the Orange Revolution of the Ukraine, in which Yanukovych was portrayed as the villain. Yanukovych ultimately claimed victory and became the president of the Ukraine. Manafort, meanwhile, was getting rich for helping Yanukovych and the party of region, re- regions rise to power. According to Harding, Manafort, in just two years, between 2012 and 2014, received more than $17 million from the party of regions. After all, Yanukovych owed his rise to power to Manafort. It was Manafort who transformed Yanukovych in his campaign, from Yanukovych's appearance to his political techniques. Harding also explains how Foreign Minister Konstantin Groshenko's former aide, Oleg Voloshin, in collusion, says about Manafort, quote-unquote, If it weren't for Paul, Ukraine would have gone under Russia much earlier. He was the one dragging Yanukovych to the West. Voloshin also described how, in, quote-unquote, in 2004, Yanukovych was dead. He was seen as a Russian puppet. It was Paul who resurrected him. However, Yanukovych's supposed change was all for show. Manafort must have known that Yanukovych would go back to his roots once he got into power. But that was not necessarily Manafort's problem. He had made a lot of money getting Yanukovych into power, not to make him a good man. Harding recounts how Yanukovych jailed Timoshenko in what would be a case of selective justice. Yanukovych did not appear to be, as Manafort said he would, be pro-Western. In fact, Yanukovych seemed to be pro-Russian. Yanukovych dealt with Russia during his time in power. In 2013, Yanukovych dropped an agreement with the European Union and accepted a $15 billion loan, or bribe, from the Russian government. Harney explains how, as the Ukrainian people began to protest, Yanukovych's government began to use brutal force to end the protests. Some of the leading anti-Yanukovych activists disappeared as pro-Yanukovych thugs beat and killed protesters for money. The riot police fired tear gas. Government snipers killed many protesters, sometimes firing on unarmed protesters. Yanukovych and some members of his government fled the palace in Kiev with many riches, Yanukovych taking $32 billion with him. Putin soon seized Crimea, pledging to protect ethnic Russians from what he described as a fascist coup that had overtaken the Ukraine. Eastern Russian speakers in the Ukraine were actually upset that Yanukovych's regime had been overthrown. Nevertheless, despite not not being in physical danger in his palace in Kiev, Yanukovych fled to Russia in early 2014. 
In a speech by Putin, documented by the BBC's article, Putin, Russia helped Yanukovych flee Ukraine. Putin said, quote unquote, I will say openly, he, referring to Yanukovych, asked to be driven away to Russia, which we did. According to Harding, Putin, however, quote unquote, had always held a dim view of Yanukovych. He saw him as uncouth and something of an idiot. But that does not change the fact that Yanukovych was working to further Putin's interests while working in office in the Ukraine. According to Four, Manafort stayed by Yanukovych's side throughout his reign over the Ukraine, even while others began to leave. Manafort's daughter, Andrea, texted his other daughter, Jessica, saying, quote unquote, don't fool yourself. That money we have is blood money. What did Manafort have to do with these destructive and ultimately tragic defense that unfolded in the Ukraine? When he was campaigning for Yanukovych, Manafort used the divisions in the Ukraine to help get Yanukovych elected. These divisions ultimately fueled the conflict in the Ukraine that occurred after Yanukovych was elected. According to Harding, Mustafa Naim described Manafort in this way, quote-unquote, he didn't think about the history or the people of Ukraine. He treated Ukraine as if he was playing a computer game, dividing the country into three parts, making these clashes. Manafort, however, soon moved on to different games, sequels to, the, to these computer games in a sense. The next game would focus more prominently on Oleg Deripaska, who got Manafort into the Ukraine in the first place. Manafort made Gates the head of Pericles, a new private equity fund that Manafort had created, as recounted by Four. Oleg Deripaska, the Russian oligarch who got Manafort involved in the Ukraine, would finance this firm. Manafort convinced Deripaska to give him $10 million for the firm in 2007, which Deripaska did. Deripaska trusted Manafort. Perhaps it was too much to trust trust to put into someone who has made dictators respectable all in order to make money. Deripaska had worked closely with Manafort. The Moscow Project's article, Everything You Need to Know About Manafort Contextualize, explains how, quote-unquote, unsealed federal documents revealed that Manafort received a 10 million loan for, from Deripaska in 2010. The documents also allege that Deripaska financially supported Manafort's work in Ukraine as far back as 2005. That goes to show that Deripaska had good reason to trust Manafort. He had worked closely with him and had trusted Manafort or seemingly or seemed to have trusted Manafort to act in the interests of himself, himself referring to Deripaska, 
and the interests of the Russian government. Soon, however, as Ford describes, the 2008 financial crisis did a number on Deripaska's wealth. Deripaska desperately needed financial assistance. His representatives asked Manafort to give Deripaska his fair share after liquidating Pericles. Manafort agreed, but ultimately never carried out this action. In 2011, Manafort stopped responding to Deripaska's representatives. Deripaska felt betrayed. He felt like Manafort had stolen his money and was now in debt to him. Four explains how Deripaska and his attorneys began to wonder if some of the money that he had lended to Manafort for certain projects had actually been used for those projects. In his deals with Deripaska, Manafort had said that Rick Davis was involved as his partner. Davis, however, had been involved in running the John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign at the time. And unlike what Manafort had said, Davis had not been receiving any of the money from Manafort's business ventures with Deripaska. Manafort, at this point in his life, was actually still working for Yanukovych. Although he had lost the support of Deripaska, there were still other Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs who could have paid Manafort after he broke away from his partnership with Deripaska. However, Deripaska's thirst for, for revenge would become a thorn in the side of Manafort for the rest of his life. Manafort, according to Four, cleverly executed plans to get some of his money that was stuck abroad back into the United States. In mid-2014, however, the FBI began to look into Yanukovych's finances. Their search led them to Manafort, who they interviewed in July of that year. The problem for Manafort was this. Manafort had worked for primarily for one client, as Four recounts, during the last decade. This client was Yanukovych. With the Yanukovych in exile, Manafort's money stopped coming in. Even worse, the FBI was now looking into Yanukovych's finances. Manafort had tons of money in offshore accounts. With the FBI looking into Yanukovych, Manafort could not use the money in these accounts. Manafort tried to launder his money into the United States using clever schemes. However, Manafort would need to resolve his personal desperation before he could fix his financial desperation. In 2015, Manafort was depressed. Ford describes how he was taken to a clinic where he cried every day, according to one of his daughters. Manafort received therapy and claimed to emerge from the clinic changed and well. Now he needed to get his money back into the United States from offshore accounts that he and Gates had. But what did he want to do with it? Keep up his lifestyle? Or to pay back and get whole with Deripaska? On February 22, 2018, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow discussed how Manafort was in a state of financial desperation before he became Trump's campaign chairman. Gates and Manafort concocted a plan that they would write false statements to banks in order to get loans for Manafort, likely for him to pay off Deripaska, who still felt vengeful towards Manafort and wanted to be paid back his debt. Manafort and Gates were not having much luck with their bank scheme. Then. $16 million was loaned to Manafort in just two loans with the help of Gates in between July 2016 and January 2017 from someone Robert Mueller calls Lender D in Manafort's indictment. The Federal Savings Bank, which is likely Lender D, gives most of its monies to veterans in Chicago. But for some reason, 
it gave Manafort a quarter of its profits in a loan. It turns out that the head of the Federal State Savings Bank, Steve Kalk, was convinced that he was going to get a job in the White House under Trump. Manafort promised Kalk a job if Kalk gave him $16 million. This deal would have benefited both of the men. Kalk wanted to go to Washington, which Manafort seemed to have promised him. And Manafort got his $16 million loan. But Manafort would also have gotten something else out of this deal besides $16 million. If Kalk had gone to the White House, Manafort would have been able to use his connections to Kalk as having inside access to the White House. According to Four, Gates once boasted that, quote-unquote, you have to understand, we've been working in Ukraine a long time, and Paul has a whole separate shadow government structure. In every ministry, he has a guy. Kalk would have been Manafort's guy in the Trump administration, but just as he was not able to fulfill the end of his bargain with Deripaska, Manafort was never able to fulfill the end of his alleged bargain with Kalk. According to Maddow, this Kalk affair occurred between July 2016 and January 2017. During this time frame, Manafort had worked for Trump and been fired by Trump. This is probably why Kalk believed Manafort. Manafort's alleged agreement with Kalk would have seemed valid to Kalk when he started loaning Manafort money because Manafort was very much in the Trump orbit, manipulating allies and enemies to gain power and get whole. For someone so desperate for money, Manafort had an odd proposal to Trump of why Trump should hire him. A proposal which, according to Harding, was delivered to Trump by their mutual friend, Thomas Barack Jr., according to Harding. According to Four, Manafort told Barack, quote-unquote, I really need to get to Trump. Harding recounts how Manafort told Trump that he would work for free. Barack told Trump's daughter, Ivanka, and her husband, Jared Kushner, that Manafort was, quote-unquote, the most experienced and lethal of managers. When Trump first met Manafort, Manafort introduced himself by saying he lived in Trump Tower. He owned an apartment there, but it was not his only home. Harding also explains that Trump liked Manafort's appearance and noted, Trump noted, that Manafort was in his mid-60s and had chestnut hair. In the book, Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green, Green explains how Roger Stone, Manafort's old associate and former advisor to the Trump campaign also told Trump that he should hire Manafort. And, according to Corey Lewandowski and David Bossy, the first words Trump said to Manafort were, quote-unquote, wow, you're a good-looking guy. This was a pattern for Trump. The first words Trump had said to Lewandowski were, quote-unquote, look at you, right out of central casting, a good-looking guy. Lewandowski was still the campaign manager was Man- when Manafort was hired for the campaign. This was a sign of things to come.
quote-unquote, Cooley knew from that moment on that Manafort was a leaker. Cooley could also tell good people from bad, and he could tell right away that Paul was a bad guy. This quote from Lewandowski and Bossy's book describes Lewandowski's experience after he found out that a reporter knew that Manafort had dinner with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Lewandowski asked Trump and Hope Hicks, a Trump campaign aide, if they had leaked this to the press, and they told him that they had not. Lewandowski concluded that if they had not leaked this dinner, Manafort must have. Lewandowski and Bossy also explained that Barack had told Trump that Manafort should be hired on the campaign as a, quote-unquote, delegate hunter. The press had been reporting that Ted Cruz, one of Trump's Republican rivals in the presidential primary race and his campaign, understood how to gain the delegates necessary to win the Republican nomination and that Lewandowski did not. Manafort had been a delegate hunter for Gerald Ford in 1976 and seemed to be a useful asset to the Trump campaign at first. Harding recounts how when Manafort joined the Trump campaign, Gates went with him. Manafort made several television appearances while he was working in the Trump campaign. In one with CNN's Chris Como, Manafort revealed that he has known Trump since the 1980s and that he thought that Trump can, quote-unquote, absolutely secure the Republican nomination. Ford explained how Manafort's firm had represented Trump in the 1980s when Trump wanted to reroute planes flying over Mar-a-Lago. Lewandowski and Bossy explain in their book how Lewandowski soon fell ill because he had not had the time to exercise, eat healthy, or even sleep. As he recounted in his book that he co-authored with Bossy, Let Trump Be Trump, Lewandowski explains that Manafort had been had been in in New York while he was traveling across the country. Quote, unquote, Manafort is back at Trump Tower in his apartment, 43G, making charts. He was big on charts. Or sitting in the conference room with the Trump kids and going out to the Hamptons on the weekends. Lewandowski was still sick and, be- and was stressed out. The Trump campaign began to doubt his abilities as campaign manager, saying Lewandowski should have never lost Wisconsin. Lewandowski defended himself, saying, quote, unquote, Look, we should never have won Wisconsin. Manafort, however, had already gained Trump's ear. Manafort told Trump that he had not joined the campaign soon enough to win all the delegates in Louisiana, and that he blames Lewandowski for the loss. Lewandowski described the war Manafort waged on him. Quote, unquote, By now, Paul Manafort is firmly ingrained and has made strategic alliances with family members. He flies to Florida in April and attends a meeting with members of the RNC. There he tells them that everything that Trump has set up to now is a ruse and that he is going to show them the real Donald Trump from now on. Paul is going to change Donald Trump. This seems awfully similar to the strategy that Manafort used with Yanukovych in the Ukraine. Years ago, in Manafort's interview with Harding about Yanukovych, Manafort tried to convince Harding that Yanukovych had changed since 2004. Harding details how Manafort would later try to explain to Trump critics that Trump was actually a very different person than the one he seemed to be. 
This was a redirect on strategy that Manafort had used for the benefit of dictators for many significant moments in his life when he was working for them. Now, he was using the strategy to shape Trump's image. Manafort, in April, said this about Trump to the Washington Post. Quote, unquote, the part he's playing now is evolving into the part you've been expecting. This strategy turned out not to be entirely pleasing for Trump. According to Lewandowski, when Trump, Lewandowski, and Hicks were in a helicopter, Hicks told an infuriated Trump that she turned down all of the Sunday show requests on Manafort's requests and that Manafort did not want Trump on television. Trump called Manafort and lashed out at him. Please note that in the next quote, I have substituted the word blank for any expletives that Trump said. During that phone call, Trump told Manafort, quote unquote, I'll go on TV anytime I blank blank want, and you won't say another blank word about it. Tone it down? I want to turn it up. I don't want to tone anything down. I play along with your delegate charts, but I have had enough. Trump called Manafort again and was still enraged by Manafort's efforts to get Trump off television. Quote, unquote, you're a political pro, Trump told Manafort. Quote, unquote, let me tell you something. I'm a pro at life. I've been around Atomic 2. I know guys like you with your hair and your skin. Manafort quite quickly tried to get back into Trump's good graces, saying, quote, unquote, I didn't mean that, sir. Despite his inability to get Trump off television, Manafort was growing in power in the Trump campaign. Lewandowski describes how Manafort managed to gain operational control over the campaign issues. Lewandowski and Bossy explain how soon Lewandowski was asked by Donald Trump Jr., Trump's son, if they could speak in private. They met up with Michael Cohen, Trump's personal lawyer at the time, and Matt Calamari, chief operating officer at Trump Properties, whom Lewandowski found to be a formidable presence. Donald Trump Jr. told Lewandowski that he has been called a distraction and told him that he was now, quote-unquote, terminated effective immediately. Soon after Lewandowski was fired, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie called him. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Christie told Lewandowski, quote-unquote, you know, I'm never going to be vice president now. One of the jobs that Lewandowski had as campaign manager was to oversee Trump's vice presidential selection list. Trump's vice president selection list was now in Manafort's hands. Manafort, who is now the Trump campaign chairman with Lewandowski gone, was more interested with having Mike Pence as Trump's running mate than the former Indiana governor himself was as reported by Ashley Parker, Alexander Burns, and Maggie Haberman in the New York Times article, A Grounded Plain and Anti-Clinton Passion, How Mike Pence Swayed the Trumps. Pence had met Trump in 2011, before he ran for governor, when he sought Trump's financial endorsement, but he developed no personal connection with Trump, making him an unlikely running mate to Trump in 2016. Pence, however, had one thing going for him. 
Trump had told associates that Pence was good-looking and, quote-unquote, straight-ass central casting. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, the first words Trump had said to Lewandowski were, quote-unquote, look at you, right-ass central casting, a good-looking guy. The fact that Trump thought Pence was good-looking was good news for Pence. On July 12th, however, Trump had already chosen Chris Christie as his running mate. As reported in Jackie Alemany's CBS News article, Donald Trump offered Chris Christie vice president role before Mike Pence, sources say. Then, Lewandowski was fired on July 20th. Alemany details how Manafort got Trump to meet with Pence on July 13th. Then, Trump and Pence were scheduled to fly back to New York together. Manafort, however, cleverly made up a story that their plane had mechanical issues, forcing Trump to stay at Pence's house for breakfast. Pence invited Trump's three oldest children to the breakfast as well. Pence, during that breakfast, gave an uncharacteristically impassioned speech, as people familiar with the matter have said. Pence detailed his own hate of Hillary Clinton, Trump's main rival in 2016. Pence also said that he felt disgusted at the corruption that Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton's husband and former president, had brought in the 1990s. Pence's speech tipped the scales in his favor. The speech that Pence gave worked. Even Jared Kushner, who had been a supporter of Newt Gingrich, Pence's rival for the spot as Trump's running mate, walked away from Pence's speech feeling like Pence was a good choice. This was all because of Manafort. Did Manafort single-handedly choose the future vice president of the United States? Not entirely. However, he manipulated Trump and his allies to get Pence into power. It was a strategic move designed to win. As Harding pointed out, Trump wanted to pick an outsider as his running mate, like Christie or Gingrich. Pence was an insider that could help put, pull more Republicans onto the Trump train. Manafort, however, had not worked on a campaign in the United States in years and was an outsider to Republican politics himself. He had been working for Viktor Yanukovych during most of the, the previous decade, leading up to his signing on with the Trump campaign. After he stopped receiving money from the Russian government, it seemed possible that maybe he had finally severed his connections to the Russian government and would never again speak to anyone associated with the Russian government. But that would prove to be wistful thinking. On June 3rd, Rob Goldstone sent Donald Trump Jr. an email. Goldstone was a publicist and music promoter whose clients included Emin Agalarov, the son of Russian oligarch Aras Agalarov. Aras Agalarov is a Russian billionaire and quote-unquote, oligarch on the rise. According to the Moscow Project's article, Oligarchs on the Rise, Everything You Need to Know About the Agalarovs. This article from the Moscow Project also explains how Aras Agalarov has worked on massive Russian state-funded projects. These projects included two stadiums for the 2018 World Cup. Aras Agalarov has even made it into Vladimir Putin's inner circle. Aras Agalarov's son, Emin, used to be married to the prominent daughter of Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan. 
Amin Agalarov is also a pop star. Trump has had ties to the Agalarovs, making a cameo appearance in one of Amin Agalarov's music videos. Amin once stated that Trump was his friend. Trump has even sent Emin a message for his birthday. Ares and Emin Agalarov worked with Trump during the 2013 Miss Universe pageant. Both father and son had powerful influence in two of the countries of the former Soviet Union, especially in Russia. It would have not been unusual for Emin Agalarov's publicist to send Trump's son an email, given the Agalarov's close relationship with Trump in the past. The content of this email, however, was quite dubious. Harding illustrates the content of the email that Goldstone sent Trump Jr. Quote, unquote, Good morning. Emin just called me and asked me to contact you with something very interesting. The Crown Prosecutor of Russia met with his father, Ares, this morning, and in their meeting offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary and her dealings with Russia, and this would be very useful to your father. This was a clear effort by the Russian government to help the Trump campaign by giving dirt on Trump's most prominent opponent in the 2016 presidential election, Hillary Clinton. Instead of informing the FBI about what Goldstone wrote, Trump Jr. responded, quote, quote, unquote, Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that and went on to say, quote unquote, seems like we have some time, and if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Trump Jr. soon told Goldstone that the representatives of the Trump campaign that will be attending this meeting, quote unquote, will likely be Paul Manafort, my brother-in-law, referring to Jared Kushner, and me. In less than a week, Manafort would be attending a meeting to conspire with probable agents of the Russian government to receive dirt on his candidate's political opponent, along with Trump Jr. and Kushner. Harner recounts how Trump Jr. soon forwarded this exchange with Goldstone to Manafort and Kushner. Goldstone arrived in Trump Tower on June 9th for the meeting that he had arranged with Trump Jr. The Russians attending this meeting included Natalia Veselnitskaya, Aras Aguilar's lawyer, who had lobbied to overturn the United States Magnitsky Act, and Renat Akhmetshin, a lobbyist, like Manafort once was, who had also worked to overturn the Magnitsky Act. Akhmetshin was also a former Soviet intelligence officer who had still had contacts in Russian intelligence. Ike Kevalatsi, who was the vice president of the Aguilarov Krakus Group, in the U.S., attended this meeting, along with a translator. During this meeting, Manafort took notes on his phone, as stated by Philip Bump in his article in the Washington Post, what Paul Manafort's Trump Tower notes mean. These notes have been just released to the public by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Manafort's notes read as follows, quote, unquote, Bill Browder, Offshore, Cyprus, 133 million shares, companies, not invest, loan, value in Cyprus as inter, Alisi, active sponsors of RNC, Browder hired Jonah Glover, tied into Cheney, 
Russian adoption by American families. The notes that Manafort took at this meeting is clear proof that not only was Manafort willing to conspire with a foreign power to impact the outcome of an election, uh, the 2016 presidential election, he accepted the dirt that was provided by this foreign power. The American attendees of this meeting denied the content of this meeting several times. As Brian Class, in his book, The Despot's Apprentice, points out that just six weeks after attending the meeting, Manafort denied that there was any connections between the Russian government and the Trump campaign, calling the allegation, quote-unquote, absurd, and saying that it had, quote-unquote, no basis to it. Also, on that very day, Trump Jr. told the public, in response to Hillary Clinton's campaign's accusations that the Russians were trying to aid Trump's election, Trump Jr. said, quote-unquote, they'll say anything to be able to win this. I mean, this is time and time again, lie after lie. Trump Jr. would later have to put out more corrections to his original statement as the media uncovered more knowledge about this meeting. Then, finally, on August 5th, 2018, Trump himself tweeted that, quote-unquote, Fake news reporting a complete fabrication that I am concerned about the meeting my wonderful son, Donald, had in Trump Tower. This was a meeting to get information on an opponent. Totally legal and done all the time in politics. And it went nowhere. I did not know about it. This tweet confirmed most of the already reported facts of this meeting and confirmed the fact that Manafort and Trump Jr. had lied about the meeting and whether there was Russian connections to the Trump campaign, which, in this tweet, Trump basically admits that there was. Manafort's life has led him to break many ethical standards, and by this point in life, attending a meeting with probable agents of a foreign power to help his campaign win the 2016 presidential election was not the worst thing that he had ever done. After his work and support for Yanukovych, and after Ukraine's government snipers fired on unarmed protesters. However, by attending this meeting, Manafort proved that at this point in his life, he is still willing to break ethical standards. But why was he breaking these standards when he was working for the Trump campaign? When he was working for Yanukovych, it was obvious that Manafort wanted monetary rewards for his work. But Manafort was working for free for Trump. What was the reward that he wanted here? Manafort's efforts on the Trump campaign did not make him entirely popular with all of Trump's supporters. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Steve Bannon, the current head of Breitbart at the time, 
was not pleased with Manafort as the Trump campaign chairman. Bannon would turn on the Sunday shows to see Manafort and become irate. Quote, unquote, this is a populist nationalist campaign, he screamed at the TV. And this guy's on from the Hamptons? According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Bannon soon called Robert Mercer, the billionaire and computer scientist who was Trump's single largest donor after Ted Cruz dropped out of the presidential race. Bannon told Mercer that he thought it would be useful to promote Kellyanne Conway, who had been working on women empowerment issues for Trump, to become campaign manager. Mercer told Bannon, quote, unquote, that sounds like a terrific idea. Mercer and his daughter Rebecca met with Trump later that day. In Rebecca Mercer's hand was an article by the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, and Alexander Burns. It detailed how Manafort, Kushner, Christie, Jason Miller, who was a member of the Trump communications team, and Ivanka Trump held a meeting where they tried to convince Trump to stay focused and make use of the teleprompter. Trump was outraged that this meeting had been leaked. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, he called Lewandowski to ask him about who he thought leaked the meeting. Now, with Rebecca Mercer holding the article in front of Trump, Trump admitted that, quote unquote, it's embarrassing. Lewandowski and Bossy describe how Rebecca Mercer quickly explained to Trump that, quote unquote, you have to hire Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. This ultimately was a blow to Manafort's power in the campaign. His successors had been picked, just as he himself was picked as Lewandowski's successor, while Lewandowski was still the campaign manager. Manafort's sudden loss of power in the Trump campaign turned out to be truer than even Manafort himself knew. Green recounts how, on August 13th, Trump and Bannon spoke via phone and decided that Bannon would run the campaign working for free, just as Manafort had done before him, and Conway would become the campaign manager. Lewandowski and Bossy recount how Bannon arrived in Bedminster on August 14th to have lunch with Trump. When he arrived, Roger Ailes told him that this was a debate preparation meeting. Rudy Giuliani, an old Trump friend, and Christie joined Bannon, Trump, and Ailes for this debate preparation. Green points out that Ailes, the former Fox News president, was now advising Trump. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, the debate preparation consisted completely of Ailes telling Trump stories. Bannon felt like he was wasting his time. Then, Manafort showed up. Gates had heard about this debate preparation meeting and had called Manafort. Manafort quickly drove for at least three hours to get to Bedminster. According to Green, Trump was still upset about the story that the New York Times had put out. Once again, all expletives have been replaced with the word blank. Trump was incensed by the way that the media was portraying him. He said, quote, unquote, How can anyone allow an article that says your campaign is all blanked up? Trump did not calm down. Quote, unquote, you think you've got to go on TV to talk to me? You treat me like a baby. Am I a baby to you? I sit there like a little baby and watch TV and you talk to me. Am I a blanking baby, Paul? According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Bannon and Giuliani both attempted to calm Trump. 
This did not work. Trump told Manafort, quote unquote, Am I a baby, Paul? You think you're so blanking smart, like you're a genius. Well, you blank on TV. Lewandowski in bossy detail how when Trump was finished attacking Manafort, quote unquote, even Bannon felt sorry for him. Lewandowski and Bossy explain how Manafort called Bannon and thanked him for help for his help in trying to calm down Trump in Bedminster. He also asked Bannon if they could meet up. Manafort was in Trump Tower at the time. Bannon soon arrived and went to a beautiful apartment to find Manafort. Manafort showed Bannon a transcript of a story that a reporter in the New York Times had sent to him. Manafort's dubious past had finally caught up to him. After reading the first three paragraphs of the article, Bannon turned to Manafort and said to Manafort, quote-unquote, $12.7 million payment from Ukraine? Green recalls how the article that Bannon had glanced at was, was one that revealed that a government anti-corruption team in the Ukraine had found out that Manafort had received, in Green's words, quote-unquote, $12.7 million in previously undisclosed cash payments from a pro-Russian political party aligned with former President Viktor F. Yanukovych, Manafort's client. Lewandowski and Bossy elaborated on the Manafort and Bannon meeting. Quote-unquote, when are they going to run it? Bannon asked. They're threatening to publish it tomorrow. Does Trump know about this? What's to know? It's all lies. When a woman in Manafort's apartment pressed him on the validity of the story, Manafort admitted, quote, unquote, It was a long time ago. I had expenses. The next day, on August 15th, the story was published. Green wrote about how, likely hoping to get back at Manafort, Lewandowski tweeted out the story. Manafort soon denied the story, saying, quote, unquote, The suggestion that I... Accepted cash payments is unfounded, silly, and nonsensical. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Trump wanted Bannon to fire Manafort, but Bannon argued that instead of proceeding with such a plan that would cause even more detrimental media attention, Trump should take much of Manafort's campaign power away. Soon, Bannon was the campaign CEO, Conway was the campaign manager, and Manafort was still the campaign chairman. As Green recounted, Roger Stone piped in on the chaos surrounding Manafort in these moments in the campaign. Quote, unquote, It's like the French Revolution. The guys who are cutting people's heads off at the beginning wind up getting their own heads cut off at the end. Ultimately, on August 18th, a friend of Trump's showed Trump a story that detailed how Manafort had worked to sway public opinion in the United States toward the pro-Russia party in the Ukraine, and how Manafort and Gates had not registered as foreign agents. According to Lewandowski and Bossy, Trump responded with, quote, quote, tell Jared to fire him. Green had described how Jared Kushner had been vacationing in Croatia since the incident in Bedminster. When he returned, he had to fire Manafort. This is recounted by Green. Quote, unquote, Kushner, now back from vacationing in Croatia, delivered the news at a Friday morning breakfast as diplomatically as he could. 
We've really got a problem here, Paul, Kushner told him. You're going to have to step down. But Manafort objected. Well, I don't want to do that because it'll look like I'm guilty, he said. Kushner pressed harder. It would be helpful if you stepped down. Yes, Manafort replied, but I can't do that. At this, Kushner's demeanor hardened, and he glanced at his watch. We're putting out a press release at 9 a.m. that says you've resigned, he said. That's in 30 seconds. out of the Trump orbit. He was no longer the mastermind of the campaign of the future president of the United States. Gates, however, survived in the Trump orbit even after Manafort was fired. Manafort's story is the story of Gates as well. Lewandowski and Bossy wrote about Gates in their book, saying, quote unquote, Gates performed as a henchman and a buffer between Paul and the staff. But it would eventually be revealed that Gates was not as loyal to Manafort as Manafort previously thought. Lewandowski and Bossy also explain how Trump had wanted to fire Gates too, but the Trump campaign was afraid that firing Gates would create more unwanted media attention. Bannon decided to make Gates the Trump campaign's liaison to the RNC. The RNC, however, thought that Gates was their liaison to the Trump campaign, and Gates soon reappeared in Trump Tower. Lewandowski and Bossy explain how Gates share an office with Bossy and Brad Parscale, who play a role in the digital aspects of the Trump campaign. Confessori and Meyer explain that Gates forged relationships with both Pat Parscale and Reince Priebus, the former chief of staff under Trump. Gates attended an election night party after Trump won the election with Thomas Barack. He later went to work on Trump's inaugural. Gates's relationship with Trump has been a colorful one. Lewandowski and Bossy describe one particular moment during the transition period when now First Lady Melania Trump, who was planning the inaugural activities, was talking on the phone to Gates. Trump walked into the room that his wife was in and heard her talking to Gates and he said, quote unquote, Rick Gates, where is he? He's on the phone, Donald, Melania said. Gates, are you there? Yes, sir. What are you doing talking to my wife? I'm in charge of the inaugural, sir. Not anymore, you're not. You're fired. 
Still, Gates somehow managed to stay on the inaugural. Confessori and Meyer explain how, after Trump's inauguration, Gates worked with Pascal to raise money for a pro-Trump group. Gates frequently visited the White House and wanted to join the administration. John Weaver, a Republican political consultant, said that the investigations into Manafort are, quote-unquote, the only reason Rick Gates is in the West Wing. Richard Holt, who had worked on Trump's inaugural, said of Gates, quote-unquote, he did it to stand on his own. He wanted his own presence with Trump. Manafort, meanwhile, tried to keep a fairly low profile after he was fired. He tweeted a bit at first. On the day before election night, Manafort tweeted, quote-unquote, Hillary Clinton campaigning in blue states today? She knows the Trump revolution begins tomorrow night. Two days later, the day after election night, Manafort tweeted, quote-unquote, Congratulations, President-elect Trump and Vice President-elect Pence, congratulating the Vice President-elect that he had chosen. On November 9th of 2016, Manafort tweeted, quote-unquote, Donald Trump in his speech last night began the healing process. He will be a president with one goal, to make America great again. Then, on December 19th, Manafort tweeted, quote, quote, President Donald J. Trump, nothing more to say except now it is time to make America great again. There truly was nothing more to say. Manafort has not tweeted since. Fox News host Sean Hannity spoke to Manafort at the inauguration. Hannity recounted how he had stayed in contact with Manafort while he was in the campaign and after he left the campaign. Hannity also recounted this about Manafort. Quote, unquote, you never lost that confidence. And I remember talking to you about a week before the election. You were 100% confident. And you and I were going over the electoral map together and this state and that state, and you pretty much called it right. Manafort had not been permanently ousted from the Trump orbit. As the Daily Beast article, Paul Manafort is back and advising Donald Trump on cabinet picks. Aswin Subsang and Olivia Nudzi, the authors, describe how Manafort managed to play a major role in picking the members of the Trump administration. A former Trump campaign official said of Manafort, quote-unquote, I think he still talks to Trump every day. I mean, Pence? That was all Manafort. Pence is on the phone with Manafort regularly. Manafort's past has now caught up to him. His past is now facing not only scrutiny, but criminal charges in two court cases. Special Counsel Robert Mueller took a special interest in Manafort. In July 2017, FBI agents raided Manafort's home. According to the Washington Post article, FBI conducted raid of former Trump campaign chairman Manafort's home by Carol D. Lenning, Tom Hamburger, and Rosalind S. Helderman. The FBI agents had a search warrant. They showed up the day Manafort went to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. People who are familiar with the matter have said that these FBI agents left Manafort's residence with certain items. Manafort's storage locker was also raided. Trump claimed when Manafort's home was raided by the FBI that it was, quote-unquote, 
tough stuff. And he was, quote-unquote, surprised to see it. Still, Trump tried his best to distance himself from Manafort and downplay his role in the Trump campaign. Mueller soon indicted Manafort. Politico's article, Associated Press may have led FBI to Manafort's storage locker by Josh Gerstein, describes how Manafort is facing two trials. The first trial, on July 25th, is in Alexandria. In this trial, Manafort is facing charges of tax evasion, failing to report foreign bank accounts, and bank fraud. This trial is currently taking place at the time of recording this podcast. The second trial is set for September 17th in Washington, where Manafort faces charges of failing to register as a foreign agent, witness tampering, and money laundering. Manafort pled not guilty to all of the charges. Gates was also indicted by Mueller. He, however, pled guilty to these charges, unlike Manafort, and he signed a deal to cooperate with Mueller and flip on Manafort. In Politico's article, new indictments revealed against Manafort after Gates pleads guilty. Gerstein and Darren Samuelson, the authors, explain that Gates admitted that he and Manafort took part in a conspiracy to hide tens of millions of dollars related to Manafort's and Gates' lobbying work in the Ukraine. The plea agreement that Gates struck with Mueller forces him to cooperate with Mueller's investigations. When he was called to the stand by prosecutors, he was their star witness, testifying against his former partner, Manafort. Gerstein and Samuelson explained that the White House characterized Gates' cooperation with Mueller as, quote-unquote, unrelated to Trump. Mercedes Schlapp, a White House advisor, said that, quote-unquote, this indictment has nothing to do with the White House or the president. Gerstein and Samuelson also detail how Charlie Black, who had worked with Manafort in the firm Black, Manafort, Stone, and Kelly, said that, quote-unquote, I don't think Rick has anything that incriminate the president or anybody else in the family in the campaign. Black added on that, quote-unquote, I hope he's thinking about planning out his future in such a way that he doesn't risk the family suffering here. However, Gates had taken many dubious actions when he was working with Manafort and most certainly has information that could incriminate Manafort. Barry Bennett, a former Trump campaign advisor, explained how Gates, quote-unquote, moves all of Paul's money around. He sets up accounts. He knew what Paul knew, and he probably acted at Paul's direction, which is pretty valuable to the prosecutor. But this assertion by the Trump orbit that Gates' cooperation with Mueller had nothing to do with with Trump was asserted before it was revealed that Gates was involved in the June 9th Trump Tower meeting with Natalia Veselnitskaya and Renat Akhmanshin. Rudy Giuliani, who is now serving as Trump's attorney, admitted that there was a huddle meeting two days before the June 9th Trump Tower meeting, as recounted by the Los Angeles Times article titled, 
Giuliani comment focuses attention on campaign huddle two days before Trump Tower meeting by David Willman. According to Willman, Giuliani revealed that this huddle meeting included Manafort, Kushner, Trump Jr., and Gates. It was a meeting to plan for the meeting with Veselnitskaya. That same day, on June 7th, Trump gave a speech. He promised in this speech that in the following week, he would present his supporters with dirt on Hillary Clinton in relation to her and her husband's dealings with Russia. Trump never gave the promised speech. This is because Trump Jr. was seemingly disappointed in the dirt that Veselnitskaya gave him. The June 7th huddle meeting that Giuliani has now revealed is important because it brings Gates into the story of the June 9th meeting. And, since Gates is cooperating with Mueller, he will likely give Mueller details about this newly disclosed meeting. To this day, Manafort has still not pled guilty to the many charges that he is facing. Manafort, in fact, has been accused of, by prosecutors of tampering with witnesses pre-trial, as recounted in Gerstein's political article titled, Manafort Jailed After Alleged Witness Tampering, recounts. After he was arrested, Manafort was put in jail to await his trial. Trump continued to express his opinions about Manafort on Twitter, tweeting, quote, quote, Wow, what a tough sentence for Paul Manafort, who has represented Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other top political people and campaigns. Didn't know Manafort was the head of the mob. What about Comey and Crooked Hillary and all of the others? Very unfair. This is yet another effort by Trump to distance himself from Manafort and his numerous crimes. The judge in one of Manafort's cases had told Manafort, quote unquote, you have abused the trust the court placed in you six months ago after learning of Manafort's attempts to tamper with witnesses. Manafort, however, seems to have been an expert at abusing the trust that others place in him. From Oleg Deripaska to Steve Kalk, many people have learned the hard way that they cannot put too much trust into Manafort. It is unknown why Manafort has refused to cooperate with Mueller. It has been speculated that Manafort is hoping for a presidential pardon. Giuliani flirted with the idea of giving Manafort a presidential pardon, saying, quote unquote, When this whole thing is over, things might get cleaned up with some presidential pardons. Perhaps Manafort is afraid of the repercussions that he or his family would face from Deripaska or someone in the Ukraine or Russia if he cooperated with the U.S. government. Or maybe Manafort just does not want to be a rat. MSNBC's Rachel Maddow detailed on July 10th of 2018 that, in preparation for his first trial, Manafort asked for a delay on the trial and his lawyers argued that it should start in November, not in July. Manafort's lawyers had just seen the information that Gates had given to the prosecutors. 
Manafort's lawyers have probably just seen all the informations that the prosecutors had on Manafort and want to delay the trial for a very long time. Manafort's lawyers, however, did not say that the reason for the delay was because they did not have much hope in Manafort's case after seeing what Gates had given Mueller. The real reason why they needed the delay, Manafort's lawyers said, was that the jail cell that Manafort was staying at was too far away for Manafort's lawyers to prepare with him. The filing from Manafort's lawyers reads, quote-unquote, The Northern Neck Region Jail is located approximately 100 miles away from Mr. Manafort's attorney's offices, and it generally takes over two hours each way by car for counsel to visit with him. This unforeseen development has severely impacted the ability of the defense to effectively prepare for the upcoming trial before this court. Mr. Manafort's current detention has made meetings with his attorneys to prepare his defense far more infrequent and enormously time-consuming compared to when he remained on house arrest and subject to GPS monitoring in Alexandria, Virginia. Manafort's defense concluded their filing with, quote-unquote, Mr. Manafort cannot effectively prepare for trial beginning on July 25th. The judge then decided that Manafort should be moved to a closer jail in Alexandria, Virginia. But Manafort did not actually want to move to a different jail. Instead, he simply wanted to delay the trial. So Manafort's attorneys filed another motion that said Manafort wanted to stay where he was. It read, quote unquote, After further reflection, issues of distance and inconvenience must yield to concerns about his safety and, more importantly, the challenges he will face adjusting to a new place of confinement. Based on this exchange alone, it appears Manafort will have trouble getting out of his trial. Maybe it makes sense that Manafort wanted to stay where he was. According to Luke Darby, in his GQ article, Paul Manafort keeps admitting stuff on monitored prison calls. Manafort had his own telephone, shower, bathroom, and did not need to wear a prison jumpsuit. Manafort said he was being treated like a VIP. And he had developed a way to con conduct business with his associates on the outside. Darby explains how Mueller and his team revealed that, quote-unquote, Manafort has revealed on monitored phone calls that, in order to exchange emails, he reads and composes emails on a second laptop that is shuffled in and out of the facility by his team. When the team takes the laptop from the jail, it reconnects to the internet and Manafort's emails are transmitted. None of this mattered, however, because the judge did move Manafort to a new jail, closer to D.C. and less accommodating. CNN's Caitlin Palance's article, Paul Manafort Faces 305 Years, explains that Manafort could face a sentence of more than 300 years. Judge Ellis, who was presiding over Manafort's first case, wrote that, quote-unquote, given the nature of the charges against the defendant, and the apparent weight of evidence against him, defendant faces the very real possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. Manafort also wears two GPS monitors. 
Gates was not the only Manafort associate who has gotten into trouble with Mueller. Dutch lawyer Alex van der Zwan, who is the son-in-law of German Khan, a Russian oligarch, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about a conversation that van der Zwan had with Gates, as the USA Today article Dutch lawyer deported after serving prison time in Mueller's Russia probe by Crystal Hayes recounts. Van der Zwan went to prison for 30 days and was released on June 4th of 2018 and was deported to the Netherlands. Van der Zwan was the first person to face sentencing in the Mueller probe thus far. Van der Zwan was not only an associate of Gates, but of Manafort as well. According to the Moscow Project, Manafort had recruited van der Zwan to write a report on Yulia Timoshenko, who was one of Yanukovych's primary rivals. Because van der Zwan, according to Hayes, cooperated with Mueller's prosecutors, he may have given them information about his work for Manafort. Manafort's attempts to delay his first trial ultimately failed, and he still maintained his position that he was innocent. This was a gamble, for, as Judge Ellis said, Manafort could face the rest of his life in prison. first trial began on July 31st, 2018. Rick Gates was one of the people testifying against him and was the prosecutor's star witness. Many people in Manafort's life were also testifying against him. Max Katzman of Alan Couture, a clothing store, took the stand. Andrea Bernstein of Trump Inc. podcast described Katzman as, quote-unquote, Wearing a clothes-fitting blue-tinged suit, lavender shirt with white collar, and a pocket square. Katzman testified that Manafort was among his top five clients. Manafort had spent half, nearly half a million dollars for suits in just one year, paying via wire transfer. Katzman also revealed that Manafort was his only client who paid via wire. Manafort would act as if the money that he was laundering into the United States had, was being paid to Alan Couture. Trump once again piped in on, Manaf on the Manafort trial, tweeting, quote, quote, Looking back on history, who was treated worse? Alphonse Capone, legendary mob boss, killer, and public enemy number one? Or Paul Manafort, political operative and Reagan dole darling, now serving solitary confinement? 
although convicted of nothing? Where is the Russian collusion? It is interesting that Trump, amidst all of the duties that being president brings him, took time to tweet about how unfairly Paul Manafort had been treated. Former White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci also commented on Manafort's trial. When asked about his impressions of Manafort and Gates during, during his time connected to the Trump campaign, Scaramucci said that, quote unquote, I knew Rick probably a little better than Paul because we worked alongside each other every day. I would say, in Paul's case, he was always very good to me. He's a very well-organized guy. Scaramucci also said that the media tends to lead people to characterize some people as guilty before they are proven guilty. Scaramucci may have said this to defend Manafort from those that believed that he was guilty. Then, on August 6th, shortly after 4 p.m., Gates testified against Manafort. Gates testified that he had worked for Manafort for a decade. Quote, unquote, I believe Mr. Manafort viewed me as an employee of the firm, Gates said. He then revealed a long list of crimes that he and Manafort had committed together. Gates had also shaved his beard. Was there a symbolic meaning behind this? CNN Chief National Security Correspondent Jim Shudo tweeted that, quote, unquote, I have seen some cold stares in my life, but watching Paul Manafort stare down his former deputy, arms crossed as Rick Gates recounted the long list of alleged crimes was remarkable. Transcripts from the court show that Gates testified that he committed crimes with Manafort. Gates revealed that he had helped Manafort store money in foreign bank accounts to pay his income and avoid taxes, quote-unquote, at Mr. Manafort's direction. Gates testified that he and Manafort had 15 foreign bank accounts that they had hid from the United States government and, knew, and that they knew what they were doing was illegal. Manafort laundered millions and hid $16 million from the IRS. Gates also admitted committing other crimes like violating the terms of his bail. Kenneth Vogel, a journalist, reported that, quote, unquote, Gates was asked whether he received reimbursement for political expenses from the presidential inaugural committee. It's possible, he said. Gates also testified that the loan from Deripaska to Manafort was not a loan, but a payment, confirming what some may have suspected. And then, Gates revealed that he had betrayed Manafort long before he cooperated with Mueller. Gates revealed that he had embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from Manafort. Manafort finally learned the truth that his deputy was not as loyal as he once thought. Despite revealing his embezzlement scheme, Gates still complimented Manafort, calling him, quote-unquote, one of the most politically brilliant strategists I've ever worked with. But was this a compliment or a legal strategy to show the jury that Manafort was the one in charge of all of their crimes? Overall, 
Gates made it clear that his that Manafort's main motive was greed. Journalists in the room reported that there was tension in the courtroom while Gates testified. Gates tried to avoid making eye contact with Manafort. Manafort, however, stared directly at Gates, leaning forward in his chair. One of Manafort's defense attorneys, Kevin Downing, worked to undermine Gates' credibility, attacking Gates for his lies. He repeatedly asked Gates how he could be trusted when he stole money from Manafort and hid affairs. Of course, this is ironic. Manafort is also a proven liar, and Manafort has also had an affair. Because Manafort's lawyers were portraying Gates as a liar, Gates said that he could get in major trouble himself for lying while testifying against Manafort because if he were to lie while testifying, the plea deal that he would have made with Mueller would be thrown out and he would face be facing the original charges that he was up against and up to 240 years in prison. Lewandowski and Bossy ran in their book that, quote-unquote, survival seemed to be Gates' main talent. In flipping on Manafort, Gates had clearly proven that it was. He truly was only looking out for his own interests, as shown when he embezzled money from Manafort. When he and Manafort were indicted, he did not attempt to save Manafort, but rather saved himself by flipping on his former boss. Manafort was probably incensed. During cross-examination, when Downing attacked Gates' credibility, Gates uttered a remarkable statement. Downing said to him, quote-unquote, After all the lies you've told and all the fraud you've committed, you expect the jury to believe you today. Gates told him that he did. Downing asked Gates why he would think that. Gates responded with, quote-unquote, I'm here to tell the truth. Mr. Manafort had the same path. I'm here. This statement by Gates illustrates the path that Manafort has chosen when he decided not to cooperate with Mueller. A desperate path to get whole. Manafort's first trial has still not ended. Scaramucci pointed out that Manafort is innocent until proven guilty. Despite that, it seems quite unlikely that even Manafort can make it out of this. And it all hinged on Manafort's decision to join the Trump campaign. Four points out that 
all of the incriminating evidence on Manafort, quote-unquote, would have remained submerged if Manafort had withstood the temptation to seek out a role in Trump's campaign. But why did Manafort want to join the Trump campaign? This may be one of the greatest mysteries in the story of Manafort's life. To understand this, one must know who Konstantin Kilomenik is. Kilomenik was Manafort's longtime employee and a Russian-Ukrainian operative. Kilomenik had worked for Manafort's firm and, like Manafort, Kilomenik had done much lobbying work for Yanukovych in the Ukraine. As the BBC's article, Manafort aide Konstantin Kilomenik charged in Russia probe details. Kilomenik has been accused of having connections to Russian intelligence. Harding describes how Kilomenik led Manafort's Kiev office. Kilmanik flew to the United States two times in 2016. These proved to be fateful meetings. Kilmanik first began to work with Manafort in 2005, after Manafort was introduced by Oleg Deripaska to Ukraine's wealthiest man and fellow oligarch, Renat Akhmatov. As recounted by Kenneth Vogel in his political article, Manafort's Man in Kiev. After Yanukovych fled the Ukraine to Russia, Kilmanik kept operations running in Manafort's Kiev office. Kilmanik continued to promote Ukraine's opposition bloc, which imposes Ukraine's pro-Western government. Kilmanik has been described as Manafort's protege, and he kept in touch with Manafort over the years, even after Manafort stopped communicating with Deripaska and his representatives. Vogel describes how Kilmanik knew how to speak Russian, Ukrainian, English, and Swedish. He became closely exposed to Russian intelligence when he joined the Russian army as a translator. Kilmanik witnessed the Soviet Union's collapse when he was 21 and joined the Moscow Office of International Republican Institute, or the IRI. When Kilmanik was asked how he learned to speak fluent English in his new job, he replied with, quote-unquote, Russian military intelligence, according to Vogel. A political operative once said about Kilmanik, quote-unquote, it was like Kostya, the guy from the GRU. That's how we talked about him. Kilmanik's goals seem to have been very similar to the goals that Manafort had. Vogel recounts how a former IRI officer said of Kilmanik, quote-unquote, he took the job at IRI for the money, not because he believed in the mission. Kilimanek did, in fact, accept a second job while he was still employed by the IRI. This job was to translate for a team working for Viktor Yanukovych and working with Paul Manafort. Vogel recounts how a former IRI official Philip Griffin recruited Kilmanek to work with Manafort, as detailed by Vogel. Kilmanek left the IRI in 2005. According to a former IRI official, IRI employees were warned not to associate themselves with Kilmanek once he had left the IRI. Once again, Kilmanek's and Manafort's goals are often one and the same. Power and wealth. Shortly after Kilmanik left the IRI, the FSB head Nikolai Patrushev accused the IRI of planning the quote-unquote 
Continuation of Velvet Revolutions in the Post-Soviet Territory. As for recounted in his article in The Atlantic, The Astonishing Tale of the Man Mueller Just Indicted, Patrushev was referencing information that he had gained from a retreat that the IRI had a month before. Kilmanick was one of the two non-Americans to attend this meeting. This meeting, however, was not one of the two fateful meetings that he would have with Manafort later in his life. Vogel wrote about how Kilmanick started to wear more expensive suits and lived in a mansion with a pool. According to Vogel, Manafort and his team, which now included Kilmanick, were tasked to turn Yanukovych from a disgraced demagogue to a respectable politician. Manafort did not speak Ukrainian nor Russian, so he was with Kilimanek, quote-unquote, all the time, according to an operative that worked with Manafort. This same operative said that Kilimanek, quote-unquote, was very close to Paul and very trusted. Kilimanek also played a role in Manafort and Gates' private equity fund, Pericles, as Vogel describes. Kilmanick has even been referred to as one of the seven key individuals involved in Pericles. Two of the other seven were Manafort and Gates. When Yanukovych announced his bid for the Ukrainian presidency in 2009, Kilmanick no longer played the role of simply translating and interpreting for Manafort, but became involved in key campaign logistics. A political operative mentioned how Manafort and Gates knew that Kilmanick had been in the Soviet intelligence services. Manafort did not seem to mind too much and flew across the Ukraine with Kilmanick, even spending a day in Crimea, according to Ukrainian border control records. After Yanukovych fell from power, Kilmanick joined the opposition bloc. Some were familiar with Kilmanick during his time with the opposition bloc described him in this way, quote-unquote, KK, referring to Konstantin Kilmanick, is averse to conflict, so when the money wasn't coming in, he just went dark. Then came the first of his two fateful meetings with Paul Manafort. Harding details how, in May 2016, Kilmanick flew to the United States and met with Manafort, his old mentor. This was two weeks before Manafort became the Trump campaign chairman. The second fateful meeting that Kilmanick had with Manafort occurred when Kilmanick flew to the United States in August and met with Manafort again. This time, they met in a cigar bar. During these meetings, Manafort and Kilmanick talked about the 2016 presidential election, unpaid bills, and the Ukraine, according to Kilmanick, just as described by Harding. Manafort and Kilmanick also emailed each other many times. According to Natasha Bertrand, as she explains in an article in the Business Insider, Kilmanick, when asked about his communications with Manafort, stated, quote-unquote, of course we discussed Trump. It was these exchanges that may reveal why Manafort accepted the job as Trump's campaign chairman. Two weeks before Trump accepted the Republican nomination, Manafort sent Kilmanick a message that he wanted Kilmanick to deliver to Oleg Deripaska, as recounted by Harding. Manafort wrote on July 7th that, quote-unquote, if he, referring to Deripaska, needs private briefings, we can accommodate. 
Manafort was offering Deripaska the inside track on the Trump campaign. Kilmanick seemed to believe that he could influence the politics of the United States, and rightfully so. Kilmanick, as forward counts, and according to reporting by Politico, had claimed to be the one that ultimately changed the Republican Party's platform from sending arms to the Ukraine. After Vogel's Politico article came out, Harding emailed Kilmanick. Harding wanted to know whether Kilmanick was a spy. Kilmanick responded with, quote unquote, Thank God Politico hasn't figured out that I taught Colonel Putin German and judo, and that visit to Dallas in November 1963. Phew, how could they have missed it? Kilmanick would continue on to express why he thought the allegation that he was a spy was so absurd. Please note that all expletives have been replaced with the word blank. Quote, unquote, seriously though, nobody gives a blank here about such stuff because it is so insane. It is well understood by everybody that the real goal of this whole campaign is to push Manafort away from Trump and annihilate his chances of winning, which are there as long as Manafort runs his campaign. My guess is Trump understands this well, and HRC's strategy has not worked so far. Kilmanick went on to say, I am just a minor casualty in the U.S. political game, which honestly has nothing to do with the Ukraine or its future. If I am the biggest issue this country has, then we are all seriously in trouble. But now I could write spy novels. Off to collect my paycheck at the KGB. K. In Manafort's indictment, Mueller referred to Manafort and someone described as a Russian longtime associate of his with connections to Russian intelligence of witness tampering. As recounted in the Washington Post article, Mueller accuses Paul Manafort of witness tampering by Spencer S. Shu, Rosalind S. Helderman, Matt Zabatowski, and Devlin Barrett. Manafort and his Russian associate apparently asked two members of a public relations firm to falsely tes testify about secret lobbying. The Russian associate that Manafort was working with appears to have been Kilmanick. Kilmanick was later indicted by Mueller. Mueller's indictment of Kilmanick, according to the Huffington Post article, Manafort associate Konstantin Kilmanick indicted in Mueller probe by Ryan J. Riley, alleges that Manafort and Kilmanick did, in fact, attempt to tamper with the witnesses. Kilmanick's most potentially most significant role in Manafort's life, however, was when he helped Manafort in Manafort's quest to get whole, which is the reason why Manafort seemed to have joined the Trump campaign in the first place. In the case of Manafort and Deripaska, it is clear that Kilmanick was acting as an intermediary between the two men. Why would Manafort offer Deripaska an inside track in the Trump campaign. What did Manafort want in return? The answer to these questions can also be found within an email exchange that Manafort had with Kilmanick. An exchange that is included in Julia Iaffi and Franklin Foer's article in The Atlantic, Did Manafort Use Trump to Curry Favor with a Putin Ally? Manafort asked Kilmanick, quote unquote, I assume you have shown our friends 
my media coverage, right? Kilmanick responded with, quote-unquote, absolutely, every article. Manfort then asked Kilmanick a few more questions, including the now infamous question of, quote-unquote, how do we use to get whole? Manafort then asked, quote-unquote, has OVD seen? OVD referred to Oleg Vladimirovich Deripaska. It is clear from this exchange that Manafort wanted to leverage his position as Trump campaign chairman in order to get whole with Deripaska, to pay back his debt to Deripaska, to get back into Deripaska's good graces, and to return to the time when Deripaska gave him millions of dollars. Manafort's life and desires, it appears the sole reason why Manafort joined the Trump campaign in the first place was to get whole with Deripaska. Deripaska had felt as if Manafort had betrayed him. He had believed that Manafort had stolen his money. This had ultimately put Manafort into a state of desperation. Manafort likely wanted to return to a time when millions of dollars from Deripaska flowed into his wallet. In order for this to happen, he would need to get whole with Deripaska to make Deripaska pleased with him again. Manafort may not have wanted to, or could not, give Deripaska the money that he wanted back, but he could give him something equally important, an inside scoop and perhaps a say in the Trump campaign. It is obvious that Manafort wanted to get back to the lavish life that he had left behind when he went dark on Deripaska. It seems as if Manafort was willing to put countless hours working for Trump for free just to return to that life that he had when he was working in the Ukraine, a life where money from Deripaska poured into his bank accounts. In many ways, Manafort's work for the Trump campaign was not just about getting whole with Deripaska, it was also about getting whole with himself. This must have been why Manafort decided to work for free in the Trump campaign. He had likely hoped that he did not need any money from Trump because soon he would be receiving millions from Deripaska. Manafort also probably wanted Trump to hire him quickly so that he could proceed with his plan to get whole. What is a better way to sell himself to Trump than to say he would work for free? The evidence of Manafort's plan to get Hull is in the details of his work in the Trump campaign. 
For example, the answer to why Manafort wanted Trump, wanted to take Trump off the Sunday shows is right there in the emails he exchanged with Kilmanick. In Eofi and Four's article, they include Manafort and Kilmanick's email exchanges. In one email, Kilmanick assures Manafort that he has sent Manafort's TV appearances to Victor, who is Deripaska's aide, to pass on to Deripaska. Kilmanick writes, quote-unquote, Yes, I have been sending everything to Victor, who has been forwarding the coverage directly to OVD. Kilmanick continued with, Frankly, the coverage has been much better than Trump's. In any case, it will hugely enhance your reputation, no matter what happens. In this email, Kilmanick tells Manafort that his coverage has been, quote-unquote, better than Trump's. In any regard, when reflecting on this exchange between Manafort and Kilmanick, it seems interesting that Manafort wanted to take Trump off the Sunday shows and appear on them himself. Were these television appearances directed at an audience of one, an audience of Oleg Deripaska? There is no evidence, however, that the private briefings that Manafort offered Deripaska ever occurred. And if Manafort is found guilty of the charges against him, which seems likely, Manafort will have failed to get whole with both Deripaska and with himself, his own life. Even worse, he now faces the possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. Was it all for nothing? Manafort's work for Trump exposed his dubious past.
Manafort now faces the real possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. For whatever reason, he has not pled guilty. Several of his prominent associates also have been indicted, which will undoubtedly strengthen the case against him if and when they testify. Keats has already testified against him. The prospects look grim for Paul Manafort. But is there still hope? Is there any hope for Manafort? At first glance, it may seem as if Manafort has not gotten whole with Deripaska. However, recent developments could suggest otherwise. According to Four, Gates had once boasted that, quote, quote, You have to understand, we've been working in Ukraine a long time, and Paul has a whole separate shadow government structure. In every ministry, he has a guy. We know that Manafort was essential in the picking of Vice President Pence. We also know that Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, was the head of the Cypriot Bank, which Manafort and Gates used to launder money. Gates also had access to the White House and visited it on several occasions, as reported in the Daily Beast article, pro-Russian lobbyist is lurking around the White House by Aswing Soupsang and Gideon Resnick. After being fired from the Trump orbit, Manafort appears to have maintained many contacts in the White House than perhaps previously thought. Just recently, the Treasury Department announced it would consider removing sanctions for a certain Russian aluminum company, Rusal, relieving it of its penalties. As CNN reported in its article, sanctions on Russia's Rusal could be lifted, Mnuchin says by Dona Borak and Marshall Cohen. Rusal's founder is Oleg Deripaska, the same Deripaska that Manafort was desperately trying to get whole with. In addition, after Trump met with Putin in Helsinki, he granted Rusal an exemption from his aluminum tariff. This exemption is hard to get. As reported by Jim Tankersley, in his New York Times article, how a blacklisted Russian firm won and lost a break from Trump's tariffs. Quote, unquote, hundreds of companies have asked the Trump administration for a special break from its sweeping aluminum tariffs. Few have succeeded. And yet, Rusal succeeded and is now exempt from the aluminum tariff. Despite the fact that Deripaska no longer plays as large of a role in Rusal as he used to, he previously agreed to reduce his stake in the company to below 50%, the sanctions hurt him financially. Deripaska is probably delighted that Rusal has a chance to evade sanctions and has been exempted from Trump's heavy tariffs on aluminum. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin explained that the purpose of the sanctions that have been imposed on many prominent figures in Russia, quote-unquote, was to impact the oligarchs, not in to impact the hard-working people of Rusal as a result of the sanctions. It is highly likely that these were Mnuchin's intentions, to make it so that regular Russian citizens were not affected by his sanctions on Deripaska and others. However, there is the question... Did someone in the administration carry out Manafort's wishes? And is the relief 
being offered to Ruzel away to try to get Manafort whole. Shortly after Ruzel America won one of their exclusions from the sanctions, Democrats in Congress prepared to protest, as recounted by Jim Tankersley in his New York Times article, How a Blacklisted Russian Firm Won and Lost a Break from Trump's Tariffs. Very few companies have had their exclusion requests from sanctions by the United States granted. Commerce Department officials defended the Brusel exemption by saying that it was coordinated, the exemption was coordinated with the Treasury Department. Treasury Department officials then denied that they had ever played a role in Brusel's exemption. A Treasury Department spokesman said in an email that the Commerce Department, quote unquote, implements authorities that are separate and distinct from sanctions implemented by Treasury's OFAC. This was a Commerce Department decision, and we were not specifically consulted. The Commerce Department then told the public that the exemption for Rusel resulted because of a clerical error. The Commerce Department soon determined that Rusel's exemption was void. Several congressional Democrats were angered by the fact that the Commerce Department had even considered exempting Rusel from sanctions in the first place. It is important to remember that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross was the head of the Cypriot Bank where Manafort and Gates laundered money. According to four, Gates had once boasted that, quote unquote, you have to understand, we've been working in Ukraine a long time and Paul has a whole separate shadow government structure. In every ministry, he has a guy. Was Ross Manafort's guy in the Trump administration? Helping him to get whole? Perhaps it was a signal from Trump to Manafort. It has been speculated that Manafort was not cooperating with Mueller because someone was threatening him or his family. But perhaps the reason why he is not cooperating is because he still believes that he can get whole. Of course, it is no good getting whole for Manafort if he goes to prison. Maybe Manafort really believes that Trump will grant Manafort a presidential pardon so he can return to the lifestyle that he has craved since he has left the Ukraine. Of course, it is all just speculation. But in the political arena today, any of it could become reality. As we watch Manafort's trial closely, we must remember how he got here. We must remember his associates, Rick Gates, Konstantin Kilmanik, and Alex Vander Zwan. We must remember his time in the Trump campaign and the impact that he had on it. We must remember the way he transformed Viktor Yanukovych and betrayed Oleg Deripaska. We must remember how it has been reported that during the June 9th meeting in Trump Tower, he took notes on his phone. We must remember how Manafort transformed lobbying and worked for dictators in Zaire, the Philippines, and Angola. We must remember the times when Manafort seemed to have it all, wealth, power, and the lavish lifestyle that comes with it. We must remember when he lost it all. And we must remember Manafort's plan to get whole.
from here, there is one question that still needs to be answered. Can Paul Manafort get whole? I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. Follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton and on Instagram, PoliticsWithPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.